And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Well, okay, half a loaf, sort of, I guess. Welcome, everyone. We are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor here at Sci-Fi for Me. And it appears that... Well, are we on or not? Okay, that's just everything's frozen then. Interesting. All right, well, we will take it as as it comes and see what happens. Um, yeah. So all of my control panels have uh, have frozen up. I don't know what's going on there. Windows 10 being Windows 10, I guess. Mazerus in the chat says, I'm on and audible. Thank you, sir. The chat is open, by the way, for those of you who are with us live. Comments are open as well. Although now I don't know that I'm going to be able to see half of them. I can see the ones in YouTube. We are broadcasting to YouTube and Facebook and Twitch. If you have a Twitch account, we're trying to get back up to 100 followers so we can start our watch parties. We're making a list of movies and TV shows and such we can watch over there with you. And, of course, we're available here this show as well as the H2O podcast available on podcast platforms, iHeartRadio, Pocket Casts. Stitcher, Listen Notes, TuneIn, Double Twist, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify. And if you are listening to these shows as a podcast, uh, if you would rate and share, that will help with the algorithms. And it looks like still, for whatever reason, uh uh-oh. Okay. It looks like wait. Oh, is that okay? Now everything fro- everything freed back up. Don't know what happened, but it does look like that we're still very popular in Spain. I don't know what's going on over there, but I'll take it. So. Uh, yeah, I, this is going to be kind of a weird thing. I normally I sit there and say I don't I don't you know I wait for the story to play out. This story has been playing out for quite a while, and there's the new uh, Calm Fury watching live on Facebook from Northeast Tennessee. Welcome. Uh, it looks like everything's kind of starting to come back. So. Um, yeah, Mazerus, uh, Clarence Thomas did say some very interesting things about free speech and social media, and it has some people thinking that maybe, uh, maybe it's 
uh, a salvo across the bow for Section 230 protection. I don't know. That's not on the agenda today, but uh, it may be something that we circle back on in in a future conversation because I think I want to have a group discussion on that, not just spout off myself uh, because of the legal aspects of it and the constitutional aspects of it. I I want to uh, be able to to um, to have a an informed discussion about that. Mindy says we're pixelated. Uh, check your settings because for a while it seems that uh, YouTube has been defaulting to a very low resolution on our broadcast. So double check. We are broadcasting out at 720. So check and see that your playback is at 720 as well. So uh, anyway. All right. So here we go. Today, this morning, we'll see. We got a we got a heads up. Grace Randolph posted last night. Uh, said um, Hollywood Reporter is about to drop 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 something. Big expose. And so here it is uh, today. Ray Fisher more uh, more in the drama between Ray Fisher and Warner Brothers. And that's a big picture, is it not? Ray Fisher, here's the headline. Ray Fisher opens up about Justice League, Joss Whedon, and Warners. Quote, I don't believe some of these people are fit for leadership, unquote. Article by Kim Masters drops today at 6 a.m. Pacific. And it's, we're going to go through this a little bit. But uh, TLDR. It's not very much more than what we've had before. I'm looking at my picture right now. And it looks really yellow. You know, I fixed the audio and then the cameras go wonky. So what are you going to do? Anyway, all right. So the... The the back and forth between Ray Fisher and Warner Brothers, Warner Media, has been going on for a year now. And we now have Zack Snyder's Justice League that's out there in the world. And we have more allegations from Fisher about what's been going on behind the scenes with the investigation and the allegations and the whatnot. And this article... For all the the new details that it shares, doesn't really doesn't really strike a balance here. And my first question, reading this, and I've read through it a couple of times now. My first question is, who benefits? Who benefits from this article? that essentially paints Fisher as a as a as a victim of abuse and racism and the stuff that's actually detailed in here the conversations that as they are reported are vague enough that they could be open to interpretation depending on what side of the conversation you're on. Especially when it comes to Jeff Johns. 
But the other parts of this, again here, well, let me let me go to the, let me go to the beginning of this because this I'm not going to go through the entire article. It's over at the Hollywood Reporter. Drop today, and we'll link to it. Um. Over the past year, reading from the article here, over the past year, the actor has assailed the filmmaker and studio in harsh but cryptic tweets for what he says was racist and inappropriate conduct. Quote, I'm not so indebted to Hollywood that I haven't been willing to put myself out there, end quote. Ray Fisher is ready to talk. Okay, what changed? Snyder cuts out there. Warner Brothers has already said that there's not going to be any more Snyder cut. There's not going to be any more Snyder verse. Then this article drops. Now that one was an article was an interview with Ann Sarnoff, president of of, uh, of Warner Warner Media, in Variety. Variety and Deadline are both owned by the same company. Hollywood Reporter is a competing trade, so take that into consideration as well. Continuing here. Ever since June 2020, when he fired off a tweet accusing Joss Whedon of gross, abusive, unprofessional, and completely unacceptable conduct on the set of Justice League, the 33-year-old actor has used social media and a series of interviews to lob serious allegations of racist behavior and a cover-up at Warner Brothers. For Fisher, who plays Cyborg in the film, the issue is no longer so much what happened on the set in 2017 after director Zack Snyder was replaced by Joss Whedon, though he's ready to explain that too. His unrelenting focus in recent months has been the way executives, first at the Warner Film Studio and then at its parent Warner Media, handled allegations raised by himself and others. Now this goes all the way back to the beginning when he pretty much uh, retracted his statement of support for Joss uh, that he'd had at, at uh, Comic-Con in San Diego. And this is, this is the beginning of all of that slide into drama. <clears throat> Continuing here, Warner Media has previously said that remedial action was taken as a result of its investigation, but it has not elaborated. A spokesperson tells The Hollywood Reporter that for privacy and legal reasons, quote, our policy is not is to not publicly disclose the findings or the results of an investigation, end quote, which is entirely appropriate because it's this is an HR matter. This is a human resources matter. And if Warner Brothers, Warner Media wasn't such a public company, as in, in the public eye, if this were Joe's bait shop down on Main Street, you wouldn't be hearing about any of this. But the fact that it's such a high-profile situation, of course, the media is all over it, and the fact that Ray Fisher's primary allegation has to do with race, then, of course, we're going to be all over it. And I'm not dismissing his allegations, and I'm not saying that they're untrue. However, I've yet to see in any article, in any interview, anything specific that could not be misinterpreted. 
And there are some things in this article where somebody says something, and depending on how you look at it, it could be or it could not be. So, as much as this article wants to clear things up, it doesn't. I'll, I'll, I'll say that now. Continuing from the article, Catherine Forrest, a former federal judge who conducted the Warner Media probe, tells THR in a statement that in interviews with more than 80 witnesses, she found, quote, no credible support for claims of racial animus or racial insensitivity. A Warner Media spokesperson notes that the company, quote, made extraordinary effort to accommodate Mr. Fisher's concerns about the investigation and to ensure its fullness and fairness and has, quote, complete confidence in the investigation process and forced conclusions. Well, what else are they going to say? This is just, this is corporate, corporate PR speak. Okay. Fisher was raised by a single mother, excuse me, let me start over again. Fisher was raised by a single mother and his grandmother in Lawnside, New Jersey, a community that he notes was the first self-governing black municipality north of the Mason-Dixon line. What does that have to do with anything? Except that it starts to establish a narrative. That, that item right there to me, has absolutely nothing to do with any of this, except, except you continue into this next line. He says he felt a new sense of urgency to speak out when the pandemic hit and the Black Lives Matter protesters took to the streets. So now suddenly there's a cause. Does he, did he, did he see an opportunity? I'm not saying he did. I'm asking the question. Did he see an opportunity? Did he see a cause to which he could glom on and have his Me Too moment? I'm not saying he did. I'm asking the question. Because this article still does not clear up really anything. Continuing, to Fisher, who had few screen credits, playing the half-man, half-machine cyborg, the first black superhero in the DC film universe, was both a huge career break and a major responsibility. Justice League, this is parenthetical, Justice League was released in 2017, the year before Marvel broke ground with Black Panther. He was mindful that the film was overseen almost entirely by white executives and filmmakers. Again, what does that have to do with your end product? Because, see, this goes back to this whole thing. I mean, it's one of the reasons why Christopher Priest stopped writing for the big comic book publishers because they were only hiring him as a black man to write black characters. And he didn't see why, why, why does that matter? And he's absolutely correct. You don't, you don't hire the writer because he's black. You hire the writer because he's good. You hire the writer because he can tell, he or she can tell the story that you think will sell comic books or movies or novels. 
you hire the person that you think will do the best job to deliver that thing what sells to the most people and makes you money. This is a business. It's show business. And, and too often, the business aspects of this get lost in the sauce. And there's a lot of show, and there's a lot of demonstration, and there's a lot of flash. But people need to remember that this is a business. And at the end of the day, bottom line, we have to make a profit. And that's true of any, any company that's, that really cares about being a successful business. I mean, if you want to go out and you want to do a bunch of, you know, virtue signaling anything, that's fine. But if you are in business to make money, to be successful, to make money, to pay your people, and, and that sort of thing, then it should not matter who's doing the job as long as you've got the person who can do the job the best. I've always thought that. I don't care what the race is. I don't care what your plumbing is. If you can do the job, if you're the best fit, do the job. That should be the goal. Continuing from the article, while Fisher has dropped details and named names, not a lot of them, outsiders have struggled to understand how did Whedon incur his anger? Did Fisher really decline to participate in an investigation that was launched in response to his own complaints, as Warner's claimed in September? Was Fisher fighting a righteous battle or a quixotic one when he set out on a path that appears to have cost him a place in the DC film universe? Now, in many hours of conversation, Fisher tells his side. Much of his previous reluctance to spell out the story, he says, arose because he didn't and still doesn't want to expose the identities of others who shared their stories with him and investigators. Quote, I'm not looking to have any witnesses lose their jobs, he says. So he tells his side, and this and this article here is on balance, mostly his side. Now, the rule of journalism, if you're going to do some kind of a he said, he said, you know, he said, she said, or a he said, he said, or a this, that, and the other, the, the general idea is that you present as much of the facts as you're able to determine what the facts are, and that comes from whatever sides are involved. If there is uh, an accusation about corporate shenanigans, you have your whistleblower and you have your corporate people who address that from the other side. And journalists, reporters, who are worth their salt, do every bit of due diligence in order to get that other side. And there's a little bit of that in this, but there's not a lot. So he says, I'm not looking to have any witnesses lose their jobs. Now, continuing. Those include some who wouldn't seem to have any worries about job security, Gal Gadot and Jason Momoa. Others who were not involved with Justice League also spoke to Fisher 
and in some cases the investigators about experiences with Whedon and with Jeff Johns, who was co-chairman of DC Films and a producer on the film. They include Charisma Carpenter, who recently wrote on social media of Whedon's alleged abusiveness on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and individuals who had worked with Johns on Sci-Fi's Krypton. Now, this starts to expand the scope of what's going on here. Because the Joss Whedon thing, Charisma Carpenter, I saw her posts, and this doesn't necessarily, I mean, I get the solidarity among the ranks, you know, the various different people who have had the shared experience, and you get people who are talking amongst themselves, and if if Charisma Carpenter has uh, legitimate allegations against Joss Whedon, if it's if it's abusive or or something like that, then the proper steps need to be taken. Absolutely. This here doesn't really go into detail. All it says was there were allegations. And there's a link, and, and there's articles, there's coverage here. But again, you're, you're, still, you're still not presenting everything. Because we don't know everything. And I'm not defending Joss Whedon. I'm not defending Warner Brothers. I'm, I'm looking at this article in terms of journalistic craft more than anything else, what it says and what it does not say. Because what it does not say is just as important as what it says. Maybe even more so. Because you ha it goes back to the question, who benefits? Because I'm reading this article, and I don't really see that anybody benefits. Not in the long run. And the Krypton thing, that's going to get very interesting here very soon. Stand by. Fisher got Warners to start an investigation more than two years after the first version of the film was released. But he soon found the process to be suspicious. Again, this is point of view. Journalists are supposed to report facts, and I get it, you're, you're presenting his side of things, so you're going to get his perspective. But it's, it's presented here in a way that, well, it, it just, to me, feels a little, well, We'll, 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 we'll get to the other. Um, but hello, Cam1138. Thanks for joining us here. So we've got Mazers, we've got Cam, we've got Calm Jury in the chat. And I can see everybody. It looks like everything's moving so far. All right, continuing from this. We soon found the process to be suspicious. The studio and its parent company seem to be focused on protecting top executives, he says. The process moved in starts and stops, and when he felt forced to ramp up his public protest, the studio responded with what Fisher calls a deliberate smear. Warners maintains it has done everything necessary to address Fisher's concerns. He still wants an apology. So, 
then it goes through the details on Zack Snyder's departure from Warner Brothers, and it doesn't get into the details about how much of a battle the Snyders were having with Warner Brothers at the time. I think that's relevant. I think that comes into play here. But uh, what they're doing in this article is very interesting in terms of Warner's versus Snyder. Because it sets up, again, this goes back with the whole, you know, the interview with Ann Sarnoff of Warner saying, Snyder got his trilogy, we're done with him. This one seems to take a little bit different perspective. Uh, in May 2017, Fisher was walking into a movie in New York when he got a call from Zack Snyder and left him stunned. Snyder was leaving Justice League, citing his daughter's suicide. So, sources say Snyder was under enormous pressure at the time. The studio was unhappy with the reception and box office performance of his previous film. The bleak, their words, the bleak Batman v Superman, and with Justice League footage already shot, now insisted on a lighter touch. Warners also asked Snyder to produce a two-hour cut that he had a wrenching time delivering, though eventually did. So there is a two-hour Snyder cut. Ultimately, Snyder left, and Whedon, who had written and directed Marvel's The Avengers and had already been brought in to help brighten Justice League's tone, took the helm. So now we're getting into the core of what got changed, and they're talking about Cyborg's, uh, Cyborg's arc, and for those of you who have seen the four-hour Snyder cut, Cyborg very much is the core of this story in terms of the emotional core, his arc. And all of the characters have a little bit better uh, treatment in the Snyder Cut than they do in the Whedon Cut. Uh, but Cyborg and The Flash get more. They get more development than you saw in the 2017 film. And there's a piece here, uh, Chris Terrio, who was one of the writers, he says, quote, Zack and I always considered Cyborg's story to be the heart of the movie. He has the most pronounced character arc of any of the heroes. And uh, Terrio says he and Snyder took the portrayal of the first black superhero in the DC film universe very seriously. He says, quote, with a white writer and a white director, we both thought having the perspective of an actor of color was really important, and Ray is really good with story and character, so he became a partner in creating Victor. Okay, that kind of thing happens all the time. Actors have ideas. They discuss those ideas with the writers and the directors, and they come up with a, they come up with a character. Now, sometimes the writers come up with the backstory. Sometimes the actor fills in the blanks as far as a backstory on a character, depending on who that character is and where that character comes from. Now, Cyborg, having come from the comic books, has a backstory, has a very rich history in the comics, going all the way back to uh, the 80s, uh, George Perez and Marv Wolfman launching the new Teen Titans. So Cyborg has a backstory and plenty of material that you can, that you can research to get that character. And Victor's perspective as Cyborg is not always necessarily about him being black and a cyborg. It has to do with him being, seeing himself as a monster 
It doesn't have anything to do with him being black. Now, every now and again, you might touch on it, sure. But the primary impetus of the arc for Cyborg in the beginning of the, of the Teen Titans comic was that he saw himself as less than human. He saw himself as a monster, a Frankenstein's monster, some, some thing to be reviled and feared. He, you know, he didn't, he didn't socialize. He didn't get out. He didn't want to deal with people. He had an arc. He had, he had development where he came out of that shell and started socializing. And I even started dating after a while. He accepted himself for who he was. That was Victor's arc. The fact that he had this monstrous thing happen to him. And now he has to learn how to deal with it. Today's modern sensibilities being what they are, I can see that everybody is so hypersensitive to the fact that we've got a black character and only a black person can have the perspective or whatever. That's okay. If that's, if that's how you want to go, fine. Continuing here, when new filming proceeded under Whedon, says Fisher, he came to feel he had to explain some of the most basic points of what would be offensive to the black community. Again, you're making it about race when cyborg story, superhero stories, the ones that work, don't necessarily have anything to do with the race of the characters. Uh, this goes through his dealings with. Uh, with with Whedon and with Snyder and uh, you know and and Warner Brothers, uh, you know, in a call with Whedon, Fisher says he barely started to talk when the filmmaker cut him off. It feels like I'm taking notes right now, and I don't like taking notes from anybody, not even Robert Downey Jr. He said. Now this is where it starts to get into the whole back and forth of you know. This is where we start to get into the Jeff Johns stuff because Fisher talks to Jeff Johns and says, you know, according to Fisher, Jeff Johns says, we can't make Joss mad. And this is where we get into the he said, he said. Publicist Howard Bragman, who represents Johns, denies that, but says Johns, quote, recalls suggesting that any creative pitches should happen when Joss Whedon was not preoccupied so he would be most receptive. Now, having directed films, having directed TV commercials, having worked on various different video productions in various different pos crew positions, I can tell you unequivocally that there are times when you can approach a director or a producer with an idea or a suggestion or a question. And there are times when you don't. There are times when a director or a producer, whoever is in charge, is in the middle of something, in the middle of a process, whether figuring out a shot or determining what equipment gets used where are you know there's various different things that come up in the course of a production 
where the attention and the focus is on that one thing. And this is a thing that needs to be dealt with, and this is to the exclusion of everything else. And if you come to me asking about the donuts, I'm going to blow up at you. As an example, there are certain times when it's appropriate and certain times when it's not appropriate. And this feels like, because I've been there on both sides of it, this is very much, if you're going to sit there and say, you've got ideas for Joss Whedon, you're going to try to tell Joss Whedon how he's, if Joss Whedon is not in the mood or if his attention is divided elsewhere, he's not going to be as receptive to those notes. There's a time and a place, and it sounds like, from, from John's perspective, it sounds like this might have been one of those time and place things. Again, I'm speculating. I wasn't there. And then we get into the whole angry black man argument. Now, this, Fisher says he later learned from a witness who participated in the investigation, who, this is, this is hearsay. <clears throat> Whatever it is, it's hearsay. Fisher says he later learned from a witness who participated in the investigation that Johns and other top executives, including then-DC Films co-chairman John Berg, and Warner Studio Chief Toby Emmerich had discussions in which they said they could not have an angry black man at the center of the film. John's rep responds that once the chairman of the studio mandated a brighter tone for the film, that would be either that would be Toby Emmerich, or it could have gone even higher to Kevin Sujihara. Remember, Kevin Sujihara is in the midst of all of this as well, although he doesn't get name checked very much in this. Once the chairman of the studio mandated a brighter tone for the film, all further discussions centered on, quote, adding joy and hopefulness to all six superheroes. There are always conversations about avoiding any stereotype of race, gender, or sexuality. Now, when you, when you take that into context, that makes a certain amount of sense. Because how many times have we gotten a show, a TV show, or a movie with the angry black man stereotype. And how many times does the angry black man stereotype get called out for being what it is? There are plenty of times we've sat and, and listened to the complaints about the angry black man being the only kind of characterization that we see on the screen. Ray Fisher even says here, you know, he's talking about, you know, his his parents, you know, Cyborg's parents are both brilliant scientists. They don't get that kind of character on screen that often. So it makes absolutely, you know, perfect sense. You sit there and go, well, we don't want to have a stereotype of Fill in the blank. Again, this goes back to point of view. This stuff, so far, everything that's in this article is all point of view. Depending on your point of view, and, and, and you know, 
I don't want to quote Obi-Wan here, but, you know, certain things are true from a certain point of view. Because if you see things from a... I have to be careful with this because I don't want to. I don't want to say. I don't want to misspeak. I don't want to say this wrong. If you are coming into a discussion as the underdog, as the oppressed party, as the as the harmed party, I guess that we could say, and then you have the other party that has done the harm. The harm is perceived. If it can be proven as factual, okay, that's one thing. If it's just how you feel you were treated, whether that's true or not, may just depend on your perspective. It could very well be that this is all a matter of, of misaligned interpretations. You say X. And one person sees a capital X and another person sees a lowercase X. And somebody else sees that X as bold and italics and somebody else sees that X underlined. You're all looking at the same facts. You're all looking at the same information. But your interpretation and your takeaway is going to be different depending on your experience and depending on your agenda and your goals at the end of the day. Who benefits? Who benefits from this article making Ray Fisher out to be the underdog? Because he's, he's essentially, he's done with the Warner Brothers, the DC movies. So he's not going to get anything out of this in terms of, you know, movie deals or, or you know, acting opportunities or anything like that. I mean, I don't know that he's necessarily burning his bridges completely. But this is, this really does feel like a whole lot of people are making a lot of noise that is not necessary because it's all a matter of interpretation. Next thing here, John's told Fisher he should play the character less like Frankenstein and more like the kind-hearted Quasimodo. Fisher says that in order to demonstrate the look he wanted, Johns dipped his shoulder in what struck Fisher as a servile posture. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the character of Quasimodo, you know most of the time Quasimodo is portrayed as somebody who has a physical deformity and he hunches over. The hunchback of Notre Dame. That's the whole, that's the whole point of the character is that he is physically not attractive but he has a kind soul. To Fisher, there was a big difference between portraying a character who was born with a disability versus one who had been transformed by trauma, and he felt Cyborg was kind of a modern-day Frankenstein, which is consistent with the comic books. He says, quote, I didn't have any intention of playing him as a jovial, cathedral-cleaning individual, and I don't think that you can make the case that that's what Jeff Johns was wanting to do. Johns' representative responds, quote, Jeff gave a note using a fictional character as an example of a sympathetic man who is unhappy and has an inclination to hide from the world, but one whom the audience roots for because he has a courageous heart. 
You can say that of either both Quasimodo or Cyborg, either one. And again, it goes back to a matter of interpretation. You can say the sky is blue. And 12 different people will disagree with you on various different pieces of that statement. Cam1138 says, I have a theory about Whedon. All right, shoot, let's hear it. I'm all for theories. And one theory is just as good as another because we're still not getting any real facts here. We're getting he, we're getting he said, he said. And I really, I've got to wonder about the timing of this one. Why is this article dropping today? Who benefits? A, a corollary to that is follow the money. Does this, does this article, does this article, see, it feels to me, and this is a gut reaction, okay, I'm, this is, this is analysis just based on just surface, surface read on this, all right, I haven't done a very much deep thinking on this. But it feels, <coughs> excuse me, it feels like, it feels like a swipe at Warner Brothers, Warner Media. In favor of Ray Fisher and the Snyderverse. Now, if you go and look at the Variety Deadline material, the interview with Ann Sarnoff, and remember, remember, Warner Media, Warner Brothers Pictures, Toby Emmerich, they did not want to do the Steiner cut. Remember that at, at, the, at the base of all of this, Warner Brothers and Warner Media did not want to produce Zack Snyder's Justice League. And I've said before, on many occasions, that the only reason we got the Snyder cut in any shape, in any form, was the fact that AT&T had to sell HBO Max. And I have to wonder if this article in The Hollywood Reporter is taking shots at Warner Brothers and Warner Media to put some egg on their face in order to set up at some point here in the next few days, the next week or two, HBO Max announcing Snyderverse. That's not an informed prediction. That is pure speculation on my part. It's a guess. But this article continues to punch at Warner Brothers and Warner Media. Not so much AT&T, although that does come up, but not in the way you would think. Because it has something to do with the catchphrase. And we'll get to that here in just a moment. Because uh, they were talking about the idea of, you know, 
Jeff Johns having an understanding of a black character on screen. And Fisher says, you know, quote, um, that was the last creative conversation about anything that Jeff Johns and I had. I knew I was on my own. Johns reps denies that he ever dismissed any comments, adding that Fisher knew Johns, whose spokesperson requested that he be identified as Lebanese American, as if that makes any difference at all. Fisher knew that Johns had evolved traditionally all-white DC properties like Shazam, Justice Society of America, and others into diverse groups of heroes in his extensive work as a comic book author. And that is true. Jeff Johns has done a lot over at DC Comics to advance that kind of thing without being preachy about it. Marvel could learn a lesson or two about that. Justice League producer Chuck Roven, a veteran on DC superhero films dating back to Batman Begins in 2005, says, quote, I fully empathize with Ray that his character arc was significantly altered and shortened. I've also collaborated with Jeff over many years and found him to be a gracious and humble man. Jeff took it upon himself to put Cyborg in the Justice League comics in the first place and has written more about the character than any other individual except for the creator. He loves the character Cyborg. I have not had time to look into that, but I don't have any reason to doubt that because Jeff Johns has written everything. Jeff Johns has written so much in the DC pantheon, and yes, he put Cyborg in the Justice League. It's one of the reasons why we see Cyborg in the Justice League all the time now. And the reasoning behind that, oddly enough, has nothing to do with the fact that Cyborg is black. It has to do with the fact that Cyborg is the technical powers set. You have magic, and you have the alien you have the super strength and super speed, and you have the really super smart with Batman. You have the magic with Zatanna, Phantom Stranger, John Constantine, Constantine. If you if you you know mix it up, you have the aliens with with Superman and Martian Manhunter, and you have you know Wonder Woman with her Amazon stuff. There wasn't. There's not a technical, there's not a, there's not a technology powers set in Justice League for the longest time. I mean, you had Red Tornado. But for the most part, you've got Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Flash. Those, these are all superpowered, metahuman power type things. There's nothing on the technical side of things, hacking computers and technology and whatnot. So it makes sense on balance. You put Cyborg in there because it's a new power set that you don't have in the mix yet. And Jeff Johns is the one that did that when they, when they relaunched everything. It just to me feels like this is, it's, it feels like something else is in play here. I don't know. I'm guessing. All right, so Cam1138's theory. Whedon's a famous early adopter of the SJW mindset. He's a male feminist. As many accusations against him as being a lech, abusing or taking advantage of women. I think it's more preferable for the media to portray Whedon as a racist than being a fraud in, return, in regards to his feminism. I guess it's more a question than a theory. Why is the media willing to address accusations of Whedon's racism, but less so his sexism? That's a good question. Although, 
to be fair, the media has uh, done quite a bit of coverage on the accusations of of Whedon r- with regard to his behavior toward women, because you know not only do you have Charisma Carpenter out there, you have uh, there are articles detailing Michelle Trachtenberg's comments. Uh, Gal Gadot has said some things, although she's not gone into any kind of a deep detail, and nothing nothing in her statement says anything about sexism, but this goes all the way back to, to Whedon's divorce. And that's when things started to come out about various different uh, behaviors and such on, uh, on set. And the accusations of sexism, I think, come hand in hand with the various different allegations of abuse in general. Uh, so, you know, without knowing, without having been there and without having any kind of conversation with people who were there, everything that we're hearing is, again, he said, she said some, you know, somebody levels an accusation against somebody. It could be true. It, it might, it, it might be true. It might not be true. We don't know if it's true. And it's, you know. And you're right. The accusations, Cam, you're, you're correct. The accusations of his sexism are pretty strong. The accusations of racism are a matter of Fisher's opinion. And again, that goes back to point of view. What is your perception of things? And this idea of your truth and my truth, which is a bunch of bogus BS anyway. Truth is truth. It's, a, it's objective. Truth is not subjective. Your perception of truth, your perception of fact might be different from mine, but that doesn't change the fact. I remember when I was in high school physics, first day of class, we were talking about definitions and uh, Coach Sanders, she was a volleyball coach. She was an excellent physics teacher. She said, we're going to define things. And a lot of physics is based on definition of things. And the chalkboard in that room was your typical green chalkboard. But she said, okay, we are going to define this chalkboard as being orange. And for the rest of the year, anytime she asked, what color is this chalkboard? The answer, the correct answer she's looking for is orange because we defined it as such. Because science depends on definitions. And you look at the sky. The sky is blue. Well, the sky is not blue. The sky looks blue because of the way light is refracted through the moisture and the atmosphere you know, all of the different compounds that are in the atmosphere. It's, it's blue because of the way that light is bent. It's a perception. Robert in the chat, I think popular culture has moved long past where you are. You're claiming English common law standards or objective truth and the possibility of innocence, innocence until proven guilty. Yeah, well, you know, I'm old fashioned that way. <coughs> Excuse me. Fortunately, the courts are still relatively similar in that, you know, there is an assumption of innocence until guilt is proven. It's it's that 
it's that need to to define things. What are you defining as abuse? What are you defining as racism? Because your perception, you know, and again, everything's been turned on its ear the last couple of two, three, four years. Words don't mean anything like what they did. And a lot of words have lost their impact because they're so misused and overused. And nowadays, people can say, well, that's racist only because it's something you don't like that got said. And it is about how you are offended. Robert, you, you make, make that point. We're living in post-common law, feminist law, human resources departments were causing offenses prime. And it is. There's a lot of, there's a lot of that. You know, I'm going to hold my tongue because I don't want to offend somebody. I'm going to hold my tongue because I don't want to be a target of cancel culture. All right, back to the article here. All of these tensions were playing out during an extremely stressful time at the studio, AT&T's $85 billion acquisition of Time Warner, which was announced in October 2016 but didn't close till June 2018, was still pending. Justice League was a $300 million proposition, and it was troubled. Warners had not been able to match Disney's consistent success with Marvel movies. Fisher felt that some of the studio executives' decision-making was driven by fear of losing their jobs makes absolutely perfect sense that it would be that way because that's what happens every single time one corporation buys another corporation. We saw it when Disney bought 20th Century Fox. We see it when AT&T bought Time Warner. We see it when Comcast bought NBC Universal. There's duplication of effort. There's duplication of departments and personnel and employees lose their jobs. That happens. Continuing, this is where it gets kind of iffy for me. The tension only escalated when the issue of having or the tension only escalated when the issue of having cyborg say booyah arose. That phrase had become a signature of the character thanks to the animated Teen Titans shows, but the character had never said it in the comics or in the original script. Fisher says that Johns had approached Snyder about including the line, but the director didn't want any catchphrases. He managed the situation by putting the word on some signs in his version of the film as an Easter egg, but John's rep said the entire studio believed the Booyah line was a fun moment of synergy. Okay. I can see that. This is what the kids like. This is, again, this is a generational thing. Fisher says he doesn't see the word in itself as an issue, but he thought it played differently in a live-action film than the animated series. That's an excellent point. He is right. Depends on how you play that line. Because you could play that line in various different ways. Any thought of black characters in pop culture with defining phrases? Gary Coleman's What You Talking About Willis, Jimmy Walker's Dynamite, and no one else in the film had a catchphrase, he, a catchphrase, he says. Quote, it seemed weird to have the only black character say that. All right, I'm going to take issue with this. Most of the other characters have something. 
depending on the era that you're talking about. For the longest time, Wonder Woman has great Hera as one of her catchphrases. Superman has Great Scott or Great Krypton. Those were, those were predominantly in the 60s and 70s. You didn't see that very much after the reboot in the 80s. But occasionally. Batman, of course, has... I'm Batman. You know, all of these characters have these things that get said. But I should also point out that this article only mentions black characters with catchphrases. There are other characters that have catchphrases, folks, and it has nothing to do with being black. Gary Coleman's What You Talking About Willis didn't have anything to do with him being black. It had to do with him being a precocious little kid saying, What You Talking About? This is, this is framed wrong. Because Mr. Spock has a catchphrase. Fascinating. Dr. McCoy has a catchphrase. I'm a doctor, not a fill-in-the-blank. The Lone Ranger has a catchphrase. There, there's nothing unusual about that. There are several catchphrases in Star Wars, for example. May the Force be with you. The Force will be with you always. I have a bad feeling about this. It doesn't have anything to do with the race of the character. But this article wants to juxtapose those two things. And I think does that in a disingenuous way. Because, okay, yes, Gary Coleman had that catchphrase. Jimmy Walker had that catchphrase. But it's not because they were black. It's because the kind of character they were. It had to do with what kind of person Jimmy Walker's character was. Gary Coleman's character didn't have anything to do with the fact that they were black. And there are other characters that have catchphrases. And yes, the Booyah line is from the animated Teen Titans. And it's dumb. But the animated Teen Titans is for kids. And this is where it comes full circle here. Quote, uh, with reshoots underway, Fisher says Whedon raised the issue again. Quote, Jeff tells me Cyborg has a catchphrase, he says. Fisher said he expressed his objections and it seemed the matter was dropped until Berg, the co-chairman of DC Films and a producer on the project, took him to dinner. Now, remember... AT&T is in the process of buying Warner Brothers, Time Warner. You have executives who are worried that heads are going to roll. That's the setup here. According to Fisher, Berg says, this is one of the most expensive movies Warner's has ever made. What if the CEO of AT&T has a son or daughter and that son or daughter wants Cyborg to say booyah in the movie and we don't have a take of that? I could lose my job. <clears throat> I can fully I can fully believe that that conversation a conversation like that took place because 
we've heard stories and we know people who have been in the film industry who have told us stories like this. It does get that petty and tiny and small-minded. And it does revolve around, well, what if someone sees this and doesn't like it and I could lose my job because it's not there? Hollywood politics are not any different from any other office politics. They did it. They shot it. It was okay. It was in the film. I didn't feel any one way particular or another on it. It didn't take away anything. The whole movie at that point was goofy enough that it just, okay, you just stuck it in there because it's a nod. I saw it for what it was. It's a wink and a nod to the animated stuff. It had nothing to do with Cyborg being black. Cyborg has the catchphrase. It just, this whole thing just feels more and more like Ray Fisher's still unhappy. And I don't want, I don't want to cast aspersions on him. He could, you know, he very well has legitimate gripes. But the way this article is framed, it's Warner Brothers is bad. You know, we've got Whedon taking his lumps. He's not on Batgirl anymore. He's not on the Nevers anymore over at, uh, over at HBO. He's likely done, at least for now, in his career. Now, very likely, Joss Whedon will have some sort of uh, redemption, resurrection, whatnot. I mean, you look at Woody Allen's career. He's still making movies despite the allegations against him and the reputation that he has. Joss Whedon will be back. And at some point, he may do some kind of a mea culpa, some soul searching, and I realize I was wrong and issue some kind of a public statement or whatnot. He's not talking now, and I don't think he needs to. I don't think there's any requirement that he should. Because whatever he says, people are going to take it however they want to take it and use it for their own purposes. And so this continues to play out, but it it doesn't it still it still has me asking that question. Who benefits? Who benefits from this article? Ray Fisher does not benefit from this article. Because he still comes off as sounding a little entitled. Some, not a lot. He's got some legitimate gripes. Okay, fine. But some of his allegations still don't have a whole lot of fact behind them. There's a lot of hearsay. There's a lot of second and third hand information here. And there are sources for this article on the other side, but they're not that many of them. But the ones that they do cite, as far as, you know, like representatives of Jeff Johns and whatnot, they they present a side of that same conversation that makes perfect sense from the side of the studio from the side of the people who are making this thing, who are responsible for delivering a product that's going to make money. It just feels like 
this is a shot at Warner Media and Warner Brothers. Now, the other thing that I want to get to real quick is this thing with Jeff Johns because it goes into uh, the Krypton connection. Uh, because it says here, multiple sources tell Hollywood reporter that the show's creators were passionate about doing some non-traditional casting. And reggae John Page, who would go on to become a breakout star of Bridgerton, had auditioned for the role of Superman's grandfather. Now, this is, this is on Krypton, which is what we're on sci-fi. But Johns, who was overseeing the project, said Superman could not have a black grandfather. The creators also wanted to make one superhero character, Adam Strange, gay or bisexual, but sources say Johns vetoed the idea. Okay, Adam Strange in the source material is not gay. He's not bisexual. He's married to a woman. Very happily so. And... Race bending, it always it always goes one way. It doesn't go the other way. I mean, it, let's have let's have John John Goodman play King Chachaka. Will that work? Will that be acceptable to anyone? See, it doesn't. It, it, it why does it always go just one way? Several sources who spoke to Fisher around this time who. Who are they? We're willing to talk to a Warner's investigator. Among them was writer Nadria Tucker, who tweeted February 24th, quote, I haven't spoken to Jeff John since the day on Krypton when he tried to tell me what is and is not a black thing. Tucker tells Hollywood Reporter that John's objected when a black female character's hairstyle was changed in scenes that took place on different days. Quote, I said black women, we tend to change our hair frequently. It's not weird. It's a black thing, she says. And he said, no, it's not. All right. This will be the last thing because we're, we're already over time. Two things here. One, these are Kryptonians, not humans. So they can have completely different habits. A black Kryptonian is not going to have the same personality, is not going to have the same habits, perspective as a black human. To change hairstyles for different days in a television production, one, it costs time and money because somebody's got to do it. Your actor is not doing it. Your actor is sitting in a chair and has got a handful of people around doing all of this hair and makeup. You keep the same hairstyle, one, to make it easier on the crew that's doing it, two, to make it easier to identify that character once they come on screen. It's a visual shorthand. So whatever they look like, if their look is consistent throughout the show, you see them, you know who they are. If you continually change the look of a character, other than for story purposes, then you run the risk of confusing the audience. At least, even, even if it's just for a second, you don't want to do anything that's going to knock your audience out of the story. But I want to remind people 
the name Nadria Tucker has come up before. She was on the writing staff for Superman and Lois. And if you will recall, she also was let go from Superman and Lois because she was agitating for people, characters like Jonathan and Martha Kent to be persons of color. I don't see Nadria Tucker as a reliable source because she has an agenda. She's made that clear in other interviews. And for them to put her in this with regard to Jeff Johns trying to make Jeff Johns out to be a racist, that, that's a red flag for me. That sets off a bell. And again, who benefits? Does the Snyderverse benefit from this? Does HBO Max benefit from this? I don't know. Could that be the goal? Could that be the agenda here? I don't know. Could this be out there to distract us from something else? Keep an eye out. Keep an eye out for other things that get announced or don't get announced or are quietly put out there just as a thing. Maybe on a Friday afternoon, Friday evening, into the weekend, so there's not a whole lot of media coverage. Keep your eyes peeled, because this is not the end. There will be something else. In the meantime, we'll keep an eye on it. All right, coming up tomorrow, we will have an open line Wednesday. We're going to set this up so that people can call in and you can share your thoughts and ask questions and do you know whatever you want with that. Uh, so uh, we'll have that set up. And then uh, we're setting up some interviews for next week. We're going to have uh, uh, Eric Leland in here on Wednesday to talk about his new book. And we've got some invitations out, some people that might uh, might be some pleasant surprise guests as we go through. And uh, talking with Matt Stevens and Dan Danford yesterday after our discussion about the Viacom CBS stock and NFTs and all of that, we're going to start doing that as a regular thing. So the first Monday of every month, we'll have them in to talk about money stuff. We'll, we're still working on details, but uh, be looking for that. In the meantime, we do invite you to subscribe if you haven't already. If you have, make sure you're still subscribed, have your notifications turned on. Feel free to hit the uh, thumbs up on your way out. Share this video or any of the others that uh, you think other people might be in interested in. And we will be back to do this all again tomorrow. We've got a new tartar sauce coming up this week. And uh, a new, of course, Good Morning Multiverse on Saturday morning with the news wrap up. And uh, that's going to do it for us now. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Remember, there's always ask, who benefits? And remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. 
Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.